Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. The voices you just heard are students on the campus of Brown University, which has become a hotspot for protest and debate around Israel's invasion of Gaza. Student organizing around the war has put that school in the spotlight with daily demonstrations and even a week-long hunger strike earlier this month. And one name continues to be invoked as protesters call for change, Hisham Awertani. Hisham is an archaeology and mathematics double major at Brown. He dreams of being an archaeologist, traveling around the world for his research. In November, he and two of his friends, Kinan Abdelhamid and Tassin Ali Ahmed, were together in Burlington, Vermont. All three men grew up in the West Bank and came to the U.S. for school, and they were in Burlington on Thanksgiving break, just, you know, passing time, as college kids do. Yeah, it was fun. We, you know, we went, we walked downtown. We watched TV shows together. We, like, messed around. It's fun, you know, young men. <laughs> the same thing you would have done at home in Palestine? Yeah, I mean, Palestine has more to do, but we managed, like, to have fun. One of the guys wanted to smoke, so they went out for a walk. It was cold, and they were each wearing the traditional Palestinian keffiyeh, which is a black-and-white scarf that's long been a visible symbol of Palestinian identity. We were walking along the sidewalk, and a guy comes down from the balcony and like pulls out a gun, and before I know what's happening, it's like I'm on the floor. I mean, I heard the gunshots, and I quite didn't quite understand it at the moment, but I didn't know that I had been hit until, like, I saw blood on my phone. Tonight, a gunman remains at large following the shooting of three college students in Burlington, Vermont, all of them of Palestinian descent. It happened last night. My main priority at that point was, like, just call 911. So I tried to, like, open my phone, and then, you know, when there's, like, liquid on your phone, it, like, messes up. 
So I got actually locked out of my phone because I couldn't put in the password right. But then I went like to the emergency thing. So I ended up calling 911. I, I didn't know if I was going to survive. Didn't know if my friends were alive. The main things I was afraid of is like, oh, it's like, am I, you know, how much blood am I losing? Whatever. I was, I was like, well, the thing is like, oh, this is how it ends. I mean, I, I was like, you know, it was never outside of the realm of possibility for me, for that to happen to me. But I always expected it to be like in the West Bank and never in Burlington. The shooter was arrested and charged with three counts of second-degree attempted murder. The state is still deciding if hate crime charges will be added before the case goes to court, likely in 2025. Hisham and his friends are unfortunately just three people on a list of Palestinians who have been attacked on U.S. soil since the war broke out. Just a few weeks ago, a Palestinian-American man was stabbed in Austin, Texas, while also wearing the traditional Palestinian scarf. And in the fall of 2023, just a week after Hamas's October 7th attack in Israel, a six-year-old named Wadia Al-Fayyum was killed near Chicago when his landlord broke into his family's home and stabbed Wadia and his mother. The attacker allegedly yelled anti-Palestinian rhetoric. Hisham, Tassin, and Kinane all survived their injuries. The latter two made full physical recoveries and returned to college. But Hisham, his journey has been more challenging. And even with all the blood, it took a moment for the extent of that to sink in. When do you realize that you're also fairly injured? Um, when the EMT people come, mm, like they tell me to move my legs, and I realize that I couldn't. Mm. What went through your mind when that happened? I, I, don't know, I didn't know what to think. I just didn't know why I couldn't. Hisham is paralyzed below the abdomen and has spent the last two months at a rehab facility in Boston. This week, we're going to hear his story and think about it in the context of the larger story that's been told and that's been heard around the violence in Gaza over the past five months. Our producer, Suzanne Gabber, has been spending time with Hisham. She was with him on his last day of inpatient therapy as he checked out of rehab and prepared to return to campus at Brown University and face a new reality as a reluctant symbol. Suzanne takes the story from here. Hey. Hello. I was just checking in to see Hisham or Kenny. Sixth floor. This is Suzanne. Hi, Hi. Yeah, nice to you. For months, I had seen Hisham on TV. I'd seen how composed he and his friends were in the face of such a terrible trauma. And like a lot of us, I had created an image in my head of the person he might be. But when I walked in, I realized this was just a college kid, fascinated by history and excited to learn. The Museum of Fine Arts. Like, owns all. Yeah, they participated in an excavation, like, 1908 or something. I mean, I've always lo loved history, and archaeology, I feel like, is not a more objective take on history, but it's, it's, it's just another way of looking at things. Hmm. You know, in history, you often get lost in, in the big picture of, like, you know, King X declares war and whatever, or, like larger political systems, whereas in archaeology, it's just, it's more personal. It gives you a better idea of how people live their lives. How are you feeling? Good, okay. 
But instead of being in class, Hisham was in rehab. And for his last day, he asked to use a machine called a locomat. How long is he going to do this for? Um, probably will go like 25 minutes. Yeah, until 5-2. He's standing upright, being held up by a machine that pushes his body to move as though he's walking all on his own. And it really looks like he's walking. Hisham even moves his torso to mimic his normal walking motions. As he walks, Hisham is facing a full-length mirror, watching himself move. It was his favorite activity in rehab, and you can see it in the way that he looks at himself, walking in place, even while trying to focus on his new life in a wheelchair. I've gotten used to life like this, or I'm trying to get used to life like this, and what happens will happen. How long is he going to do this for? Hisham's mom, Elizabeth, has been staying with him in Boston. In the two months since he's been here, even she hasn't seen him break down. I've been following Hisham's story for a while. From his very first statement, just days after the attack, Hisham and his mom have used their newfound platform to advocate for a focus on Palestinians in Gaza. It was a decision they came to very quickly. In part, because Hisham has been able to process his own injuries at a speed that seems surprising for someone so young. It's not that necessarily like, okay. It's, I guess, one, just growing up in the West Bank and growing up under occupation, just growing up Palestinian in general, it's like, you learn fairly quickly that life is absurd and you'll get screwed over and, you know, you just have to suck it up and, like, keep moving forward. But also at the same time, I mean, like, in relation to that, it's like, I don't know, it kind of feels unfair for me to, like, sit around and feel bad about myself and much worse things are happening to other people. And it, I honestly, yeah, like, it kind of feels like what I'm going through is, like, not that big of a deal. I can imagine, even before this happened, that this was, like, a very intense moment and an inflection point of feeling a lot of grief for other people. But I wonder, like, have you had then had space to process this and, like, feel what comes with... Yeah. I mean, I don't know, I've been trying to. But, again, like, it's still not over. Yeah. That's true. You're still pretty early. And also, like, in Gaza, it's not over. Like, I'm getting treatment, but, like, if the same thing had happened to me there, I'd be, like, probably be carried around on a stretcher if even. Is that a thing you've thought about a lot in this process? Yeah. Like, yeah, like, I'm very lucky. The, the way I've been trying to deal with it is just do active work. I mean, both through working on myself in therapy and just... I guess, like, advocating for others, because, I don't know, I feel like I, I had been given a voice, and I feel like I need to use the voice for good. As he's walking, his mom starts to take a video of him in action. She's been posting long updates on the GoFundMe the family set up for Hisham after the attack. And people are very invested. As of February 15th, the GoFundMe has received more than $1.6 million in donations, with more than 500 comments from people following Hisham's recovery. If I share yeah. this with Daddy, do you want me to... Do you mind it being here with other people? Yes. Yes? Yes. Okay. That's what I was asking. How does it feel? I think your mom's been doing a lot of, like, sharing updates, and it seems like you're less inclined to do that. I am... I feel like I'm going on my own journey and, you know, it's my life at the same time. 
um, so many people have become invested in metaphorically and literally in the process that I can't quite say like just don't share anything. But is it weird that people are invested? People you don't know are invested yes. in you. I mean, I'm, even before I know, I was quite a private person, so. Yeah. So what did this do to that, I guess? Do you feel like you can have any sort of privacy at this point? I don't know. I mean, I hope that just in the future, not that people will forget, but that, I don't know, I'll be able to grow out of it and do things on my own and known by, be known by those things. What are you anticipating going back to school is like? Who knows? Um, I'll try to keep a low profile, but it's not that easy in a wheelchair. It's also not that easy when you're now like a national news story. Yeah. I feel like even on Brown campus have become quite a point of topic. Yeah, especially on Brown campus. Especially on Brown campus, you're right. Coming up, we'll continue Hisham's story, and we'll speak with a media analyst about the connection between Hisham's experience and the still-developing narratives about Palestine in the U.S. media. That's just ahead. It's Felice Leon from the show team at Notes from America with Kai Wright. Something happens to me when I listen to the show. No matter the topic or the guest, I can always think of someone I want to tell about what I just heard. And I do. So if you're thinking about who in your life would enjoy this episode or another episode you've heard, please share it with them now. The folks in your life trust your good taste, and we would appreciate you spreading the word. Thanks. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Today, we're spending some time with a young man named Hisham Awartani. Hisham is a student at Brown University. He's Palestinian, grew up in the West Bank, and moved to the U.S. for school. Last winter, he and three friends were attacked by a gunman. Hisham was left paralyzed below the abdomen. He's just returned to campus, and while recovering, Hisham has also had to reckon with the fact that he's become something of a symbol for his fellow students and their movement to force Brown to divest from companies that they believe profit from violence in Gaza and the West Bank. Producer Suzanne Gabber was with Hisham on the eve of his first day back on campus. Last day! Mm-hmm. Bye. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for you. I'm excited too. I'm waiting with Hisham and his family at a rehab clinic in Boston for word that he's been discharged after two months of treatment and therapy. I'm leaving. I knew this is a moment he's wanted for a long time. And I also knew, on some level, he'd been thinking about what it meant to go back to school. Tonight, Brown University students grappling with the shooting of one of their own. Almost immediately after Hisham was shot, He'd become a symbol of Palestinian oppression and resistance for many at Brown University, where he goes to school. Brown Corporation is a scam. No others like Hisham. Brown Corporation is a scam. 
which not everyone on the Providence, Rhode Island campus had taken kindly to, including University President Christina Paxson. This is how you want to honor your friend? I'm sorry. Tell city and students, told you, not divesting made them unsafe. And what are you doing? Not divesting. Hisham was shot because of your complicity. I don't like seeing my name plastered everywhere, but I uh, condone it in as much as using my name and my experience can elicit more of an emotional reaction in people mm-hmm. and can get the point home better than just... I mean, uh, yeah, like, it sucks to say, but, like, people here find it harder to empathize with people in Gaza than they would me. Why do you think that empathy is so different? Because, I mean, many different reasons. I think that Palestinians and Palestine are always, like, the way that people excuse it is that they're always assumed to be a terrorist. And here it's just, it's, it's absurd to use the same logic that the Israeli army uses on me. Because I'm like, I mean, I'm literally in, like, Burlington, Vermont. Like, you can't, you can't say he was trying to stab someone. You can't say he was part of a terrorist organization. Even though, like, in so many of the cases, like, they'd shoot people, like, unarmed or walking away or, you know, doing nothing. And, but just because they say, they provide the bare minimum of an, of an excuse, they get away with it. We head out from the rehab facility. The plan is for the family to drive straight down to Brown. The car is so packed, his mom has to carry some of his bags on her lap. Hisham's grandma, Marion, is in the driver's seat. She has to decide what she can have sitting on her lap. The wheelchair, we are hoping, will fit in. Marion is who he'd been visiting at the time of the attack. Maybe the big blue bag can go under the wheelchair. When we get to Providence, I meet Hisham at a cafe just around the corner from where his new dorm will be. Up until that moment, he had only been allowed to leave the rehab facility on rare occasions, and only when accompanied by staff. How was the drive for you? It's good. Yeah. Uh, first time like being in a seat. And for the first time, I see a more open version of him. Okay, so genuinely, how are you feeling being here? I feel like this must be kind of, I would be overwhelmed. Yeah, but I mean like, you know, I take it one step at a time. Yeah? You might not be able to tell from his deadpan delivery, but Hisham loves making walking jokes now that he's in a wheelchair. And it's kind of comforting to know he's still got a sense of humor after all of this. I mean, in, in the practical sense, it means like getting over the curb, getting across the street, you know. Can't do everything at once. As we sipped our coffee, we talked a lot about what his new life on campus would be. I mean, like, the, only problem is the attack left him with five classes with homework or exams that he needs to take before passing. He finished two classes while in rehab and still has another three to finish in the next few months, in addition to his new classes. I feel like you're going to be holed up in that door for a lot of studying this semester. Yeah, fine. That's how it was before. I'm looking forward to more of that. But even with all his studying, his connection to Palestine and standing up for his community is central. At Brown, we have like the divest movement and like being involved in that is important for me. I mean, like the main thing I've been focusing on is that like, this idea of like the dehumanization of Palestinians and how I feel like in my case it was one of the few cases where I was able to escape that. I mean, I was more surprised because it's not like I don't know, it's not consistent. I just, I mean, like, you know, like, for instance, even, like, before what happened to me, like, there was, 
a Palestinian child like in Chicago was like stabbed multiple times and like that that didn't make that I mean it made the headlines but they've run away fairly quick. I feel like that was much more serious than what happened to me. He's talking about Wadiya Al Fayoum, a six year old boy who was killed outside of Chicago just a week after October seventh. A heartbreaking story. And one of many Hisham carries with him as he considers his own experience. Another belongs to Telfi Abdul Jabbar, who had been killed in the West Bank while visiting family just weeks before. Telfi had grown up in Louisiana, but was just miles from Hisham's hometown of Ramallah when an IDF soldier fatally shot him. When I saw the news, I couldn't stop thinking about Hisham. And apparently, he'd made that connection too. Yeah, like I, 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 no, I remember like going and looking up stuff, looking up his name. You know, the first few days after he was killed, like it was only like you know, Middle East Eye or Al Jazeera reporting on it, and you know maybe then CNN. Like I remember like once there was an article, I think I don't know by some newspaper, and like they go through like three quarters of the article is somebody talking about like you know October seventh and hostages and you know and the Israeli army and their losses, and then like as, a, as an appendix, like, you know, small footnotes like yeah they they killed someone. It, it confirmed what I'd been thinking beforehand. Is like if I was shot in the West Bank, no one would care. And here is like another American citizen being shot in the West Bank, and no one cared. So. Does that bother you? Yeah, it does bother me. But it's just it's it's just annoying that people care about the personal details of my story when it's not about the personal details. It's about like you know, it's about why this happened to me, not how it felt that happened here, how I feel now, it's like, it's not relevant, it's like, why did this happen? And because, you know, the reason why this happened is also causing this to happen to so many other, other people. That's Brown University college student Hisham Awatani speaking with our producer Suzanne Gabber. We'll return to Hisham's story later in the show, but I want to pause and try to better understand part of what this young man told us about his experience. He doesn't think he would have received the same outpouring of attention and sympathy that he's had over the past few months if he'd been shot in the West Bank where he grew up instead of Ramat. So is that true? And if so, what does it say about the story that's been told in the U.S. about the violence in Gaza generally. I'm joined by William Yeomans, a professor of media and public affairs at George Washington University who has been studying these very questions. William, thanks uh, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me and for the um, incredibly moving uh, uh, audio piece there. I'm just so impressed by how thoughtful Hisham is and his perspective after suffering this, this tragedy. Well, what do you think is the distinction in the way Hisham's story has been told in the U.S. media and someone shot or killed in Gaza? What do you, what do you think of that distinction he's making? I was uh, moved by his bringing up of, of Taufik, the teenager who was killed uh, last month. Um, and in, in another depressing note that I would add, there was another teenager who was also 17 years old, the same age of, as Taufik, who was uh, also not far from Hisham's hometown, a, a young kid named Mohammed Khadur, who's also a Palestinian-American. 
the thing about Taufik is he was a Palestinian American, and both uh, of them were killed in the West Bank. And uh, the U.S. actually had to send some investigators to look into their their murders because they didn't trust uh, that the Israeli authorities were going to seriously um, investigate these cases. And it looks like probably both were killed by settlers, Israeli settlers, and the State Department has been warning about their violence. I looked up news about Muhammad, and I only found an AP piece and a few other sort of marginal uh newspapers uh, that covered it, but only got five hits on Google News. And uh, when I looked up uh, Hisham's name, I saw that there were hundreds of stories, more than a thousand stories on Google News, um, although Muhammad was only killed last week. So there is this validity to what he's saying, which is if he was shot in Palestine, it it would not be news. I think part of it has to do with the novelty, right? We've almost got a normalized view of Palestinians losing lives in Palestine. That's not news because it's always happening. Mm-hmm. But when a Palestinian is shot in the U.S. or or murdered in the U.S., like the several cases that we've talked about, it's uh, it's a bit it's a bit new, and so it gets a bit more attention. And that's unfortunate because we're mm-hmm. missing the large part of the story, which is the destruction um, that the Palestinians are facing. Do you think it has anything to do with like just the way we process individualized violence versus like violence from authorities, from the state, from the cops, from from the army? Yes, I believe that it's much easier for us to talk critically about violence when it happens sort of on the street and it's random, it seems stochastic. Um, even then there's a danger where we end up kind of understanding it as this episode that's isolated from larger themes or larger patterns, which could then raise questions about, you know, is media coverage, for example, um, spark uh, or hurt kind of causing more hate towards a group because it's misrepresenting their their stories. Um, and so and then you can also uh, look at other kinds of uh, thematic th- things that are difficult to, to talk about. But that doesn't happen when we just look at, oh, there was this unfortunate murder and it was kind of an isolated incident. There's no problem there. But when we talk about state violence, that's systematic and that's widespread and it's much more politically touchy to talk about, uh, which I think is related to why we also see so many human interest stories about Palestinians um, or focusing on sort of humanitarian issues in Gaza, as opposed to really looking at the underlying political context, uh, the Mm -hmm. history of military occupation, and also thinking critically about about Palestinian aspirations and what the Palestinian political positions have been um, for decades. So I, I think that we we put this sort of safe zone around um, talking about violence towards Palestinians in ways that make it um, easier to talk about, but are really not telling the whole story. That removes the policy and politics that leads to it. Uh, the Biden administration has indicated that it will likely vote against a ceasefire resolution in the United Nations, which would doom the resolution. I know you've been specifically studying the coverage uh, of the debate over a ceasefire for the last few months. What have you seen about how it's been depicted in media? It's almost non-existent in some of the most important media platforms uh, in our public sphere. I did this study of um, Sunday news talk shows, which used to be a staple of sort of political elite chatter and discussion. Um, They're still very important programs, even if they're not as important as they once were. 
but I, I studied uh, 50 episodes and I looked at what 140 of the guests were saying. And it was remarkably stark. I mean, for one thing, there was only one Palestinian guest in the four months that I studied these shows. One mm. Palestinian guest talking about what's happening in Palestine. That just strikes me as fundamentally wrong. And so you'd have, um, there weren't like tons of Israeli guests, but there was a 10 to 1 ratio. There were 10 Israeli guests to, to the one Palestinian guest. 10 to guest. 1, that is a, that's notable. Yes. And there were, of all the American guests, so 120 of the total guests were American. Not one was Arab American or Palestinian American, despite there being so many people who can uh, speak uh, to represent the community. Um, and so that reflected in the way that things were talked about. So ceasefire. How, so, I mean, how, how is that? How does that then uh, shape the conversation? Exactly. Yeah, it leads to very different kinds of framing in the conversations, which really reflects sort of like elite, the elite in in Congress and in the White House, what they're sort of saying. And so when ceasefire came up, it only came up ninety four times you know, in 50 hours of television, only came up 94 times. And most of the time it was to shoot it down or to be negative. So they only had maybe two or three guests that were really arguing for ceasefire. And the vast majority of guests were either not talking about it or shooting it down. Um, there were other problematic framings. Like, for example, there was a lot more um, mention of Hamas than Palestinians, twice as much. Even though Palestinians were the ones who were really bearing the brunt, I think it's more convenient politically to talk about this as a war between Israel and Hamas. But given the scale of uh, destruction and civilian damage, how can you not sort of talk about the Palestinians? Um, one of the more interesting things was uh, the, the concept of military occupation, which is for Palestinians the vital context to understanding really what's happening now. It was only mentioned 15 times. In 50 hours of television, hmm. uh, but if you talk to any Palestinian, it's something. It's the first point of analysis. So the the exclusion of Palestinian guests on these very influential, important TV shows uh, affects what they talk about and how they talk about it. So unsurprisingly, the vast majority of guests were overly sympathetic to Israel, at a rate of six times more than being sympathetic to Palestinians. And the last thing that I would say is that when they did talk about uh, the Palestinians in any way that was sympathetic, it was more from a position of sort of pity, looking at the humanitarian crisis, which is better than nothing, right? I mean, it was still the well, which is real. Party. I mean, it is a it is quite a real humanitarian crisis, exactly. But it's it strips it of the political analysis. It strips it of you know what are the Pal what do the Palestinians actually want, right. uh, which is freedom. Right. But if you don't have Palestinians on air, who's gonna who's gonna provide that important perspective? I I gather that, and we're gonna to have to take a break in a second. But I, I gather that even for you, you've you've seen a lack of. It's been difficult for you to engage this conversation because of this. That 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 somehow it becomes it loses nuance. Um, and I just wanted to prompt you to talk about that a little bit. What what is the nuance that's getting lost? You know, I think that very quickly we we tend to fall into talking points in any kind of media coverage about this. Uh, and that happens when your number one guest is a strategic communicator who's an elected official whose job is to sort of talk the, the company line. Right, right. 
And so the people who can provide nuance, the people who are actually experiencing these things on the ground, who aren't running for re-election or seeking campaign donations, the people who study these things, those are the people who can actually bring nuance. Um, but instead, we're hearing from people who live in Washington, D.C. about what's happening in Gaza or people who you know live in Jerusalem who are talking about what's happening in Gaza. And we weren't hearing from the voices of people in Gaza. Um, and so that's that's. We're not able to achieve any kind of sophistication and understanding and get past sort of the propaganda and the talking points if we only are listening to the elected officials and other members of the elite. I'm talking with William Yeomans, a professor of media and public affairs at George Washington University, about how the story of October 7th and Israel's subsequent invasion of Gaza has been told in the U.S. It's Notes from America. More with William Yeomans coming up. Stay with us. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. I'm talking with William Yeomans, George Washington University professor of media and public affairs, about how the U.S. media has told the story of October 7th and, the, and Israel's invasion of Gaza thereafter. William, uh, before the break, we were talking about nuance and the absence of nuance in the coverage. Uh, I gather one nuanced point that you see missing is it, the conversation has been framed around religion, um, that this is... Uh, uh, on one hand, or you're saying something anti-Semitic. On the other hand, you're saying something Islamophobic, and you feel like that's missing a deeper conversation. Explain that to me. Yeah, I have to say that um, it's not it's not very constructive when the lines don't break down clearly around religion. And I know that sounds like a crazy thing to say because everyone sees it as a religious conflict. In reality, it's a political conflict. It's about an ideological movement that founded Israel that saw the, the land as belonging to one people, but there's other people who are living on the land. Um, and there was that's a complicated deck. We can complicate that view by looking at that not everyone who called themselves a Zionist, for example, believed that the Palestinians should be removed from their land. So there was a there was a sort of nuance there. There was a debate there. Of course, the side that won was the side that uh, ultimately usurped uh, the Palestinians and sort of took their land. But even in the even in debates today, there are Jews on both sides of the equation. There are Jews that are hardcore supporters of Israel, of course. There are Jews that want to see a two-state solution and want Palestinian human rights recognized. And there are Jews who are against Zionism. Um, by the same token, you know, one of my good friends here in D.C., her uh, sister was trapped in a, in a church in Gaza that fell under uh, fire by a sniper and, and two of the people who were taking sanctuary in the church were killed. So to talk about Christians in Gaza, 
uh, and that 10% of Palestinians are Christian defies the idea that being anti-Palestinian is therefore necessarily uh, Islamophobic. I think we um, should be pushing ourselves to understand the larger political history here, to understand uh, why are there so many Palestinian refugees? Why is Gaza 70% made up of refugees? We have this whole debate about UNRWA and whether it should be funded or not, but no one is asking, well, why are there still Palestinian refugees today? And maybe, you know, we can get to the point of realizing that that's part of the reason for the conflict. Um, and I think that we need to we need to push people to be a little more empathetic in both sides of the story, you know. But uh, to focus on the Palestinian side, there's there's a lack of empathy for thinking about, okay, what would I do if my home was taken from me, if my if I was kicked out from my historic ancestral homeland, and if I was forced to live somewhere else. Americans, when they speak without empathy towards Palestinians, I think, oh, yeah, you would just take that peacefully. If another group of people came and said, this is our land, you would just, you know, say, fine, you're right, and you would move on. I mean, that's why I can't understand so much of the discourse in this country, because it just shows a basic lack uh, of understanding of just the basic issues. And if we don't have Palestinians telling stories on media, we're never going to hear those. You've been researching media coverage of Palestinians, not just in this conflict, but in previous ones as well. Going back to the 80s, U.S. coverage of the first intifada in 1987. Uh, how was that coverage different from what we're seeing today? Has there been an evolution or a change? The intifada and the news media coverage of in the late 80s was actually a bit of a turning point in U.S. and Western public opinion towards Israel. Because at that point, um, Israel had met these largely nonviolent Palestinian protests with very direct, overt violence. I mean, Yitzhak Rabin at the time, uh, who would go on to be known as a peacemaker, I think he was defense minister at the time, but he had a broken bones policy which was basically literally breaking the bones of anyone caught protesting uh, violently or nonviolently. And when I say violently, really at that time they were throwing rocks. But there were these ma massive movements of tax boycotts, um, of strikes, of all different kinds of means of nonviolent resistance. In fact, in the first year during the Intifada, not a single Israeli was killed. Not a single Israeli civilian was killed. There might have been a soldier or two, but it was very small scale in terms of violent resistance. And uh, instead of the world rushing to defend the Palestinians, um, the, the Western world, at least, and the United States sort of tried to, you know, consult uh, Israel on how, on how to do better PR and how to manage the sort of violence. Um, so it, so it's, it's, it's a moment when it's a very important for world sympathy of, uh, towards the Palestinians. But it was also done at this time where there was no social media. So there was a strong power of gatekeepers and traditional media to sort of tell the stories. But the images got out. Alternative media was important at that time. The international sort of press wires were important for getting the story out at that time. But it was it was leaking out slowly. So it took a time for public opinion to become informed. But this day and age, the gap between social media and mainstream media coverage is immediately visible. Uh, to the public. And so we've gotten this whole debate about social media and, you know, some senators are um, fear-mongering about TikTok, you know, brain brainwashing children. Uh, well, and there's a whole debate about, I mean, there's a debate about what you see on social media as it relates to this particular story and what is and isn't true, and a whole industry of people conducting media analysis. I mean, one of the things that's come up 
uh, that was driven by a lot of social media conversation was uh, a reaction to, I believe it was the Associated Press, but maybe others that were used minors uh, to describe children in Palestine who had been killed um, instead of calling them children. Um, yes, I, rem- I remember that. It reminded me of this argument about adultification, which we also see with the African-American community, especially in, in the context of police violence and police brutality, where a teenager is sort of rendered into an adult uh, for certain communities. And for other communities, a teenager is a child. Um, and I think that that's one of the many things that brings up the that makes the Palestinian experience something very relatable uh, to the African-American experience. So the thing we see is like this passive voice, you know, it's never the police kill or Israel kills. It's always we're killed by, you know, the victim was mm. killed by, or sometimes we see even headlines without agents. It's kind of like, uh, there was a, there was a horrendous headline on CNN about the um, little girl who was, who was stuck in a car and all her family members were killed. And it was kind of like, um, you know, little girl dies in a car with relatives, but it was, it completely left out who did the killing. And I think this is all because it feels very controversial to sort of say who did what, when it comes to this, especially when the commission of violence is done by Israel and uh, there's so much flack that media companies get when they when they kind of use that direct um, kind of language. And so they try to sort of softball it by, at least in the headlines, being circumspect. Mm-hmm. It's not doing a service to the public. And it, it, it gets called out so much now on social media, it's almost creating this powerful feedback loop. That, that documents it, names it, and lets people sort of say that this is wrong. We're about to hear more of Hisham's story and his experience, and particularly returning to the campus of Brown University. Schools, campuses have been a real site uh, of debate about this. I wonder if you could speak to what you've seen on your own campus, on George Washington, which is <laughs> there near the White House. Yes, it's uh, it's something that's really riveted the campus in many ways. Uh, we've had a very active student body here, and the university found procedural grounds for suspending them. Uh, and so it's turned into a debate about free speech on campus. Uh, it's quite clear to me that nobody wants to just have open discussions about what's happening in Gaza because of the political sensitivities around it. And I feel that's a real loss. I think it's a disservice. Um, I think that we have to do what a university does and and confront the difficult issues of the day, knowing that these are not going to be easy conversations. I will listen to people I disagree with, and that was part of my college experience. And I would expect that universities do the same. And I I just want to applause what I I saw at Dartmouth uh, University, which actively organized forums around Gaza and said, let's come together as a campus and model the kind of dialogue and discourse that we want to have. William Yeomans is a professor of media and public affairs at George Washington University. He studies how stories of Arab Americans are told in U.S. media. Thanks, Will. Before we return to Hisham's story, uh, a question for all of you. If the Biden administration policy on Gaza has upset you, how's that going to affect your voting? Call 844-745-TALK and just leave us a message. Okay, we're going to go back now to Brown University student Hisham Aratani. Our producer, Suzanne Gabbard, joins him as he returns to campus and moves into his new dorm after months of rehab in Boston.
built twice, I think. There are a lot of things Hisham's looking forward to at school. Going back to classes, for one. But his dorm having AC, that's huge. Last year, he'd been stuck on campus without air conditioning all summer. And let me tell you, if you don't live on the East Coast, summers without air conditioning are painful. The humidity will really get you. When he transferred from the wheelchair to the bed, it was very bouncy. When we make it to his dorm, we join his mom, Elizabeth, and grandmother, Marion, in unpacking his room. You feel it, just sort of sit down on it. It's only been a few hours, and there are already difficulties with the setup. That's not safe for him, Mom. No, that would be really hard to transfer. Yeah. Keep yes. falling. Yeah. Yeah, he, he needs... Hisham leaves the room for a bit as we unpack, and different perspectives of the night start to come up. The image I had of the day of the attack continues to change. Although what he's doing with a pack of cigarettes in his... Well, you can ask him, Mum. <laughs> when they were shot, they were coming back from a walk down to the UVM campus, five blocks maybe from my house. As I understood it, Tassie needed a smoke. But maybe Hisham was also smoking. And I'm his grandma's house was just a few blocks away from the shooting, and she was one of the first people to meet Hisham at the hospital. She knows all the details of the day. Even though you can hear there are pieces of it she's still processing. The same is true for his mom, who was back in Palestine at the time. Elizabeth, who's Irish-American, moved to Palestine right out of college. She met her husband there while in study abroad her junior year. And she's an international development worker who has worked with refugees. She's lived in the West Bank for 25 years. And she's raising three kids there. My children are from, you know, we're from a a background where we have resources in Palestine. We have a home, we have jobs, we have, they go to a good school, they have education, um, they have opportunities to travel. They, I didn't think that they would be on the front lines. I didn't think that they would be going to protest. Obviously, I was wrong. Um, I didn't think that they would be targeted uh, because I thought that they would be somewhere safe. Um, I had not realize that to be Palestinian is to be unsafe. Mm. And I understand that now, that you can't, as a Palestinian, if you are proud and open as a Palestinian, protect yourself. And when she landed in Vermont to see her son for the first time, another image was shattered. I think one of the things that Hisham has found and that the boys have found is that I think they're less traumatized in, in no, they have a different type of trauma, obviously, but existentially they're not shaken as they would have been if they had been someone who didn't grow up with this. Um, you know, he got shot in his knee with a rubber bullet and came home that night and we never knew anything had happened, you know, so... When did he get shot in the knee with a rubber bullet? About two years ago, we just found out. You just found out? <laughs> yes, his friend, I don't know how this came up, and his friend said... Oh, yeah, and of course, when he got shot in the knee, I'm like, what? <laughs> He'd gone out to a protest against what's happening in Palestine, and, and um, an Israeli military sniper had um, aimed his knee. Um, and I think at that, at that protest, one of his friends was, was also shot in the leg with a live bullet. So wow. we were very lucky. I had no idea. Did you intentionally keep that from her? Yeah, she didn't have to know about that. I mean, I was fine in the end. It was like it was a rubber bullet, so those still hurt. Yeah, it did hurt, but I was fine, so she didn't have to worry. 
He just yeah, he just came home and just dealt with it and like didn't talk to us about it. And there we were thinking, oh yeah, Hashem just didn't go to protest. It's funny to hear her say this. The Hisham I've been talking to is very politically engaged. Seeing him at a protest would not surprise me at all. But I guess we all keep secrets from our parents. Over the last few years, Hisham has become involved with the Brown University divestment movement, the same one that has been using his name on campus in recent protests. They are calling for the school to divest from all companies linked to the Israeli military. They say the investments are supporting the Israeli occupation in the West Bank, where Hisham grew up. I think it's ridiculous that universities are invested in arms companies and that universities are invested in military systems that put their own students at risk. I mean, I was in a meeting with the president of the university and about divestment, another student said, you know, told an experience like she was doing research for the university in the West Bank. And Israeli army, like Israeli soldiers came and like started pointing their guns at her. I mean, like that's, the university is invested in an apparatus that oppresses its own students is a bit ludicrous. But now that he's back at Brown, his activism is going to look a little different. Sounds like you kind of want a lower profile. You don't want to plan on being involved in that as much when you get back. I mean, more so like behind the scenes and such. Hisham says just the act of returning to school is part of that. Palestinians love education. There's very little mobility. I feel like people go to education to alleviate that. Yeah, it's, it's our way of resisting in a sense. You know, I'm not going to let this break my stride. I'm going to keep walking forward. For Hisham, the way forward is attending classes in person again. Before the attack, he was eagerly planning for an upcoming trip to Italy with his university's archaeology program. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to go to Sardinia. I mean, that's an, that's an area that I've been interested in since my first semester, because I took a class on that, uh-huh. on the Western Mediterranean, and the trade routes there in Iron Age, Bronze Age. And I think Sardinia is um, it's fascinating for me because it's an island. It's very insular. Even to this day, it's like... It preserves lots of old things that are elsewhere lost. Mm. It's a goal he's not willing to let go of. He's actually been taking Italian for the last few years to help him on this trip. The one problem is it's an archaeology dig on rough and rugged terrain. And in his wheelchair, Hisham's movement is limited. But he tells me that near the site there's a museum where he's already dreaming of working. That was Brown University student Hisham Awartani talking with our producer Suzanne Gabber. Suzanne will continue to check in with Hisham throughout the semester and bring us updates on the show. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcast and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. This episode was produced by Suzanne Gabber. Mixing and theme music by Jared Paul. Milton Ruiz was our live engineer this week. And special thanks to Jason Isaac for engineering help. Our team also includes 
Katerina Barton, Regina Dehir, Mike Kutchman, Felice Leone, Matthew Mirando, Siona Petros, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending time with us. 